Welcome everyone. Hope you're all doing well. My name is Sunan Bindra and I'm the head of community at Dartmouth Blockchain. I'm joined by Aaron Shea, who's one of the co-founders of Dartmouth Blockchain. Um, and today we're recording a podcast episode with Austin Federa. He's head of strategy and communications at Solana Foundation and has previously worked as the head of communications at Solana Foundation, as well as at Solana Labs in the same role. Um, outside of that, he's worked as a senior product marketing manager at Bison Trails and has experience at Republic and Public Crypto. Um, most of his roles have revolved largely around marketing and growth, and we're really excited to have him and join him here today on the podcast. So, Austin, I'll kind of turn it over to you if you want to introduce yourself and uh, just you know let everyone know how's it going. Yeah, uh, excited to be here. Glad we could finally find some time to schedule this. I know I've been uh, canceling on you guys for a few days, so <laughs> things come up. Yeah, no worries at all. Totally understand. A lot on your plate as as, as you know as things happen. Um, but yeah, we kind of just love to dive into it. You know, here sort of your your background, a bit of how you got into crypto, um, and just want to understand, you know, why Solana and how your experience has been so far. Yeah, well, you know, I actually started off coming out of college, I did uh, political science and environmental studies undergraduate. And most of that work was on like, natural resource treaty management, specifically water resource management among like, countries that don't always agree with each other. Um, and that was a ton of fun. I thought about doing the PhD route and kind of decided I wanted to do something that would have more direct impact. I was um, I was reading a study that was talking about how the average number of downloads for a paper on NBER was five and the average number of authors on a paper on NBER was four. And that was pretty depressing. Uh, so <laughs> I decided I wanted to do something a little bit different. Um, I actually went and spent my first two or three years working in journalism, both at NPR and then at the Boston Globe before transitioning into working for, for startups. And a lot of that was fintech companies in the early days. And that was an area that was just interesting to me about like changing things in the financial industry and kind of you know, especially like going, I, I entered college in 2009. So that was a pretty rough time to be starting off and going to school. Um, so coming out of that, you know, that was a period of like, economic collapses are always something I'm I'm super interested in and the, the way that those systems get structured. Um, and then so you fast forward a few years, and um, I'm, I moved to New York for a job with a fintech company that uh, I realized just basically on day one is about to fail. There's like two months of runway left on the thing. And they're attempting to do a pivot into a borrow lend token built on Ethereum. But this is in like 2017. This is not when everyone's like, oh, let's build Ethereum DeFi. Like the term DeFi didn't really exist back then. Um, and the project didn't go anywhere really. We never really got it off the ground. But when you have to sit down and learn something for work, you approach it with a different level of scrutiny than if you're approaching it just for fun necessarily. And so I was not a huge believer in Bitcoin. I'm still, you know, kind of like, yeah, Bitcoin's interesting, but not that interesting um, just personally. But going through the smart contract work um, for, you know, Ethereum at that time, I was super interested in where this technology could go in the future. Uh, you know, when that company uh, kind of just started winding up operations and pivoting into a totally different field, um, got an offer to go work and run marketing and launch the Republic crypto brand over Republic, which was an alternative investments platform for non-accredited investors. So most investors in the US are not accredited. You have to have over $300,000 of income uh, over the last two years or have more than a million dollars of assets that aren't your house. Um, so that's a very limited number of folks who actually fit that criteria. I think it's about 8% of the US population. Um, so Republic was really trying to decentralize, uh, you know, as we'd say nowadays, uh, the investment opportunities in early stage startups and crypto projects. So that was my first real proper exposure to the space through there. Um, and then went to work eventually for Bison Trails, working on product marketing for them, uh, which got acquired by Coinbase. And the Coinbase acquisition, you know, was, a, was an awesome thing for the company and the organization. But Coinbase really wasn't a kind of organization I thought I would do particularly well in. Um, just a very big company, publicly traded, very regulated markets, like whole bunch of stuff that makes it very important in the industry, but not necessarily as exciting to me personally. Um, and so a few folks I'd known, I, Solana wasn't even on my radar when I was originally looking for blockchains to go work for. Um, but two folks that worked with at Republic were then at Solana Labs and they said, Hey, you should, you should talk to Raj and Tolly. They, they, they're building something different. It's not a sharded ecosystem. It's not an L2 on top of Ethereum. It's its own thing. Um, I got on a call and, you know, 30 hours later, we had a signed offer letter. 
Uh, and that was, you know, two years ago. And so uh, it's been a, been a wild ride here since then. Yeah, no, clearly you've had a well-traveled path and that's super interesting to kind of hear from you went from your background and possibly the research and academia route kind yeah. of through saw, you know, like, I think what's interesting from your background that stood to me was you've been in sort of marketing and content creation roles at like the Boston Globe and more like traditional news and radio. And then you shifted towards like Republic where it's more like investing. And like you said, you know, public for non-accredited investors and now for, uh, you know, an L1 directly. So we'd love to kind of hear how marketing growth strategy um, across your roles, how those sort of verticals look like across yeah. traditional media to more like investor facing towards crypto um, and specifically for an L1, you know, what kind of has stayed the same, what's been really different, what have been some challenges adjusting through those and what's kind of been some rewarding experiences as well through that. Yeah. So one of the weird things about crypto space is marketing and communications are sort of pretty poor quality industries within crypto. Um, you know, I think if you, if you look at comms in general, web two companies, in my opinion, kind of ruined the communications roles largely like, like, the communications officer at a web two company is basically the person who told you that Facebook didn't have anything to do with interfering in us elections. And they have never been involved in any sort of, you know, genocide creation in other parts of the world. And the role there is largely to deflect and defend that core institution. And that is a change that happened kind of in web two throughout the process of that role. I think you look at marketing in in most blockchain web3 ecosystems it's nft influencers you know trying to pump their their projects or yeah it's very sort of incestuous economically and it doesn't really feel like a clean industry right so uh you know and that, that's part of every emerging technology right the, the early days of the web had this too and you know we kind of sanitized a lot of the early days of the web by you know, pretending Google and Facebook are not ad tech companies. When at the end of the day, they're they're not really social media companies, they're ad tech companies. Social media just happens to be the best way to sell ads. Um, and, you know, you look at something like uh, crypto and you're like, why are there so few people working in comms and marketing at these organizations? And it's because a lot of us who are good at that work probably should not have been comms or marketing people. Like the, you probably should, like... I, you know, it's sort of a joke I've made before, but it's like, I could have been a mid-grade engineer as opposed to like a great person in comms and marketing, right? And and that is sort of like some of the best people for developer relations uh, are some of the folks who sort of maybe failed out a little bit of the engineering track. Some of the best professors are people who, you know, maybe they could have been a mid-level person in like a policy shop at like the White House, but like they're much better in academia because just something about them fits that that realm better. I feel like there's really much the same thing with marketing and comms. I've never hired someone, let me see this. Yeah, I've never hired someone who came from a traditional comms or marketing background for a comms or marketing role at a blockchain company. Um, I think it's very, very interesting. And you see this in crypto journalism too. Most of the best crypto journalists they don't come from like market reporters in in like at Bloomberg who decide to go report on crypto. It's largely people who are interested in crypto who learn journalism. I think it's a lot easier to teach someone journalism than crypto. The same thing applies kind of in comms and marketing. It's a lot easier to teach someone marketing than it is to teach them about blockchain. Certainly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting to hear that you haven't hired anyone from a traditional, you know, sort of marketing and, and growth and communications back into these roles. Um, like you said, it's, you know, been two years, which I mean, I guess is a long time in the crypto space, but not yeah. too, too long overall at Solana out of your whole career. Um, and just, since then, you've shifted, you know, from Solana Labs, to Solana Foundation and kind of gone from product communication roles into now more strategy and communications um, for, you know, the listeners yeah. may not be exactly familiar. You know, my understanding is that Solana Labs is the actual technical arm working on a lot of the engineering and protocol development and Solana Foundation is sort of nonprofit arm helping with the ecosystem, the growth, the community angles. But we'd love to hear from your angles, how you kind of better define those. And in your eyes, what is sort of interplay between these like sub arms of Solana and how has the role shifted for you kind of shifting these roles as well as like the part of organization you're in? Yeah, so there is no such organization of Solana, right? It's sort of like saying you'd work for Linux or something like that. Like it is a nonprofit software package and like open source, like, and that is the thing that is Solana. And everyone has a right to say that they're part of Solana if they use the network, own a token, build anything. Like it's very kind of open, right? It's sort of the idea of like there's no, there's no gatekeepers there to even say you're a part of Solana, right? Um, what we're so the difference between labs and foundation. So Solana Labs is both a for-profit entity and it's an organization that's like 
it, it did a bunch of the original core engineering on the validator client. And it continues to build some reference implementations and do kind of work like that. The whole, the, the mobile phone project is based out of Solana Labs. The foundation, you know, it, it, it functions very similar to the role that maybe the Ethereum Foundation played in the early days of the Ethereum ecosystem. It is a Swiss nonprofit in large part because of the protections that being a Swiss foundation gives you. Not like legal protections in terms of like, uh, it's not like an offshore entity and like the Caymans. Like the protections we're actually talking about are, are against people like investors. If you have a nonprofit in the United States, the board can basically change the charter of the nonprofit. In Switzerland, it doesn't work quite that way. So there's actually a lot more legal protections that this organization will continue to serve in the best interest of the Solana network over the long term because of the way it's legally structured. And that's a that's a really key point to why all these blockchain foundations are based in Switzerland. It's kind of a random thing you, you wouldn't necessarily think of. Um, so the foundation does engineering work as well, but the engineering work it does is more around spec generation and sort of the 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 work that is done before engineers do work. So the world's most boring example of this is there's a bunch of people somewhere in a room that have to define what the Wi-Fi standard is, right? That's spec generation at its core. Now it's a little bit sexier in a blockchain because we're talking about like binary interfaces and like a bunch of this work around like, how does a wallet find the token program to interact with a specific program based on the type of code that it's reading off the chain? Like there's actually a lot more interesting problems taking place because just quite frankly, the computer science work is more interesting on a blockchain than it is in most other systems. Um, but that means that the work of the foundation is a little slow. It's a little bit of, there's definitely an ecosystem support component to it, but the real like most important work is stuff like FireDancer. And so FireDancer is a second validator client coming to the Solana network. That client is not built by the foundation, but the foundation is sort of the orchestrating entity that said, okay, we want to build another validator client. We're going to give a grant to a certain organization to build a validator client. But in order to do that, we have to document the protocol spec. We have to write the thing. We have to create systems where, you know, new processes and features and sort of all kinds of components that developers might want to use can be brought into the spec. And the reason the spec is so important is the spec says, you know, it doesn't matter which black box you're talking to. If you feed data into the black box, it should come out the same way in each of those black boxes. That's the point of a protocol spec is to have something to build against. So when a transaction goes through the validator client that Solana Labs makes, or the validator client that Jito runs, which is a MEV optimized client, or the FireDancer client, the end result is the same thing out the other end. Um, and so some of that work is what the foundation does. The foundation also does stuff like it runs Breakpoint, it runs the hacker houses, like it runs a lot of ecosystem development all around the world as well. Um, and a huge function of the organization is also grant giving. I mean, grants are a, a major component of what the foundation exists to do. It has a community treasury that was sort of given to it in the Genesis block of, of Solana, but, you know, it's the only organization in Solana that never actually earned its tokens. Every, every other token holder in the network has done something to earn their tokens. Either they're a core engineer from the early days and they were compensated partially in tokens in exchange for building code. They were a person who you know invested early in the protocol. They were a builder who bought tokens so they could deploy a program on chain. The foundation really didn't earn its tokens, right? It was, it was just given them. And so it has to be a good steward of all of that work to make sure it actually happens and goes forward. Yeah, I mean, seems like like we really like Solana Foundation. We were just talking about the tweet of the Grizzly Thon and kind of the video, the promo, oh, yeah. which was like absolutely popping on Twitter. So we have fun too, right? Yeah, that was good work. Yeah. But um switching gears a little bit, like I'm sure like you think a lot about kind of drawing developers to the Solana blockchain and how to get people to build projects. And one thing that we were discovering was the electric capital developer report. And one thing that I said was that Solana has one of the highest year over year growth in terms of just active developers among the major blockchains. And so like based off that, I'm kind of curious, is your mind, like, how do you think about the different L1s where Solana is? And um, yeah, kind of this just general narrative that, you know, post FTX, some people were, you know, there was some Solana FUD, but obviously the numbers speak differently. Yeah. So this is kind of one of those ones that I think is really interesting because the 
developer growth on Solana, those numbers from electrical the electric capital report that goes through December of last year, that goes through the period of sort of huge amounts of uncertainty around the future of the Solana network, at least externally. Now, what I'll say is from the folks who are day in and day out building on the network, there really was never a moment of concern where it's like, oh, is this existential for, for the network? But from the outside, I mean, I think the relationship between FTX and folks at the Solana Foundation looked closer than it actually was. And, you know, Solana launched uh, the mainnet beta in March of 2020. And sort of in the summer of 2020, the team from FDX, uh, you know, came to Solana and said, we are trying to build a decentralized exchange that is going to be as performant as a centralized exchange. And Solana is the only blockchain that we can build this thing on. And that was an exciting moment, right? I think the, the idea of a central limit order book built on chain and central limit order books are the same exchange book mechanism that the New York Stock Exchange and the Nikkei and the, you know, all these stock exchanges all around the world run on order books. They don't run on AMMs. They don't run on, claw, on uh, centralized liquidity market makers. They run on, sorry, uh, concentrated liquidity market makers. They run on order books because that is just a very efficient system um, to fulfill orders and matching engines. It's very capital efficient. And so this was the first central limit order book really built on chain, which was the code for Serum. Now, the code for Serum actually is still around. The community sort of stripped FTX out of it and rebuilt it as something called OpenBook. But when that organization came and started building on Solana, they were building real engineering that no one could build anywhere else on other blockchains. Over the next year, their sort of approach to building things on the network really changed. Um, they launched a bunch of projects that were fairly uninteresting and not technologically, you know, competent. And the the scope of that organization started to shift from using DeFi to disrupt their core business model to trying to engage in, in DC, quite frankly, and with regulators and, and use that as the moat to keep competitors away. And so at that point, there was really very little work to be done between the two organizations because our, our interest is not in permission DeFi. Our interest is not in regulating DeFi. Our interest is in open, permissionless, credibly neutral, neutral blockchains that anyone can build whatever they'd like to build on. And so at that point, there's a, a pretty big divergence between the path that you know Sam Bankman-Fried wanted to take FTX and the role of something like the Solana Foundation. So it's a, uh, you know, there, there's certainly a, a scary moment there as, as FTX collapses, where folks were wondering like, oh, were half of the nodes being run actually by FTX? How integral was the FTX engineering team? Turned out the answer was not at all. Um, you know, there are actually more validators today than before FTX crashed. And as you've seen from the electric capital report, um, de developers are sticking around and they're, they're building even more here. And Grizzlython, I think, is over 7,000 registrations at this point. So it's very cool to see um, that attention still here, even in the middle of a bear market. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think what's fascinating about like crypto is like, you know, if you look at crypto Twitter, um, you just see so many narratives, right? And it's like pretty tribalistic and there's definitely a lot of emotional, like reactionary behavior and something like yeah. crypto, like people immediately just say things. And like with your job as head of communications, like do you, do you see your responsibility as trying to manage that or kind of create your own narratives of like what's more accurate with Solana or like, yeah, how do you really navigate like the various narratives that kind of bubble up in crypto? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I would say is very weird, um, is over the last, call it six months, as the market downturn has happened, this sort of wag me idea, we're all going to make it, is gone from most of the other L1s um, and L2s. And we have seen more sort of intentionally malicious actors spreading false information. There's always people who just get stuff wrong and overreact. And I don't, you know, like, you should you should read more, but like I don't really fault people at that. But you see some folks, uh, especially sort of the influencer crowd on Twitter, uh, intentionally misrepresenting stuff about Solana, and that's like I would say that was a really big change. I I had sort of expected many of these people were sort of maybe a little bit more morally upstanding than they turned out to be, um, and that's kind of just a sad moment because. You know, it's sort of like you dangle people over a volcano. You learn who they actually are. That old adage. I think a bear market does that a little bit too. And you see the founders who are just playing nice versus the ones who actually are nice. Um, and that's kind of a bit of a sad moment for the industry too, because 
there's still at no more than 20 million daily active users of blockchain worldwide, which is nothing, right? That's 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 smaller numbers than Twitter, which is the world's smallest social media network. We're, we're really talking about an industry that's still incredibly young. And there's something about tech in general where like we just don't pull together very well on anything. There's no like social media lobbying group in DC. There's barely a crypto lobbying group in DC. Um, you know, and these sorts of activities become more important as these organizations grow in prominence throughout the world. So uh, it's it's actually been a little sad to see some of that sort of fake narrative popping up around this stuff. What I will say though is like people in crypto are smart, and like a core belief of mine is that people are smarter than you give them credit to be. And if you put the right information out there, if you explain it in in straightforward language, you don't lawyer up all of your comms, enough people are going to see through to what's real and what's true that that message will get out there and we'll, we'll start to take over. I, I think most of the problems when you start to see true false information about stuff, it might go viral for a day or two, but then it's corrected because there's nothing, there's nothing to back it up. You know, BitBoy is pretty famous for this kind of stuff where it just like tweets random stuff. And, uh, you know, we all find out two or three days later, oh, there was actually nothing to that thing you were talking about. But by then he's moved on to some other grift and there's people who fall for it, you know, and there are, and I feel bad for them because sometimes people lose a lot of money because they follow people that they, they shouldn't. And they, they follow some of their investments. Um, but you know, as a space in general, I think we're doing a pretty good job at sort of fighting some of these counter narratives. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it's like important to, especially like bringing in new people into the space. Um, like in terms of just competing L1s, well, I guess there is the narrative that L1s are competing. Do you view other blockchains like Ethereum, Near, Avalanche, or like some of the newer ones, the newer ones like Aptos, do you see them as competitors? And you think about like um, competing for them for developers, or do you not really conceptualize it like that? I mean, I think when we're talking about competition, we have to be kind of pretty honest about what we're talking about. From a developer standpoint, our competition is Facebook and Google. At the end of the day, the, the best engineers in mass work for the largest tech companies in the United States right now. What we're when we're talking about competition for, you know the small world of web three, like sure on some level, some of these are competitors, but usually the competition is not um, merit-based for lack of a better term. There, there's usually something else going on there. So for example, there've been a few projects that have migrated away from Solana. None of them have done that for technical reasons. They've all done it because they had monetary incentives to do so. And in that regard, sure, there's a competition going on, but I don't really think that is the way to actually compete in any space, right? Microsoft spent hundreds of millions of dollars trying to get developers to adopt the Windows phone, and we saw how that went, right? The, the At the end of the day, the L1 space is not particularly competitive, I don't think, at this time. Um, I think it, it could become so. Um, but Solana offers something that other chains really don't offer. Um, and that's not necessarily saying that like, that means Solana is the best place for everyone, but the folks building on Solana have a reason to build on Solana. It's a single state. It's an incredibly fast chain. It's very high performant. It does have more costly validators to run and because it is more performant. And there are downsides to that, but there are also incredible advantages to that where you can build different kinds of things on Solana than you can build anywhere else. And that is, I think, the real thing here is like from that perspective, there are no competitors to Solana from a performance standpoint. There are reasons that you might choose to build an application-specific sidechain, right? That That is a business use case decision that is not a technology-driven decision. I wouldn't say that something that like Cosmos is competing with Solana. I think it's offering a different take on what a blockchain could be. I think this gets really more apparent when you stop looking at smart contract chains and you start looking at alternative uses of blockchains. So like Arweave or IPFS, those are both decentralized storage networks that run on Blockweave systems or blockchain systems, but their function and role is very different than a network like Solana where its function is to be executional. Storing data on Solana is actually incredibly expensive. You should not store, uh, you know, gigabytes of data on Solana. It's very expensive. You should start gigabytes of data on something like Arweave or IPFS or Filecoin because that's what those protocols are built for. Solana is built to be an execution layer protocol, right? 
And so that means there's certain things Solana will be less good at. It's not built to be a store of value protocol like Bitcoin is. So when we think about competition, I think it's better to think about what are the pro what like domains and areas are these different protocols actually trying to address? And then within there, you can certainly have competition. Um, I think if you look at something like like Polygon and Ethereum are competitors. Now, most people don't think about them that way, but they're functionally offering the same thing, which is uh, an EVM space to deploy smart contracts to. And on Polygon, it's incredibly centralized, but it's it's faster. On Ethereum, it's much more decentralized, but it's slower and therefore it's more expensive. Those are those are competing ecosystems for the same developers because the same types of people are thinking about what the advantages or disadvantages are of developing on one or the other. Because Solana doesn't run on the EVM, it has its own runtime environment. If folks are basically trying to see like what EVM ecosystem is best for me, Solana is probably not even in the running of things they're considering. But if they're coming at it from principles of, I need to build on an ecosystem that is fast, performant, and will scale into the future, that's a different set of criteria that might lead them to make a different decision. Yeah, I mean, it really sounds like for many of these like different blockchains, like Solana fulfills some very specific use cases. Um, the main thing is it's high performance. So like for you, like what are some of the most exciting initiatives or kind of use cases that you see are being unlocked in Solana, even if they're in like early stages and might not necessarily be mainstream or, um, you know, popular within the crypto narrative yet. Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the things that was really surprising to us is that NFTs took off so aggressively on Solana. Um, you know, if you go back to Tolly's original vision for the blockchain with like the other co-founders, it was literally the deck said blockchain and NASDAQ speed. It was not about pictures of monkeys and communities and DAOs and all this other stuff. It was really meant to be meant to be conceived of initially as a chain that was uh, really high performant for DeFi. And there were parts of DeFi that really hit on Solana that you can do things on high performance. Like one of the differences on Solana is every DeFi protocol is auto compounding. Because there's no gas fees to you know compound the rewards back in, so it's very easy to just have that be an automatic system there. Um, you know, when you build a network that's incredibly performant in certain domains, people will find new use cases for it you never expected. And this is kind of like every time you you 10x capacity, you usually 10x, usually reduce by 10 the cost as well. And so we saw, like, go back to the old cell phone days, going from 2G to 3G, the types of applications people were building for smartphones changed dramatically. You couldn't build Tinder on a 2G iPhone. Each picture would take 45 seconds to load. Suddenly you can build Tinder on a 3G phone, right? The jump from 3G to LTE is what brought streaming video to phones. Now, 5G, as far as I can tell, does absolutely nothing for anyone. It's identical to 4G. The speeds are usually the same or lower. There's really no reason that anyone needs a 5G connection. And we've seen that. It hasn't, It hasn't like, you know, you, you go back to the early days of 5G and it was like, oh, we're going to be doing robot surgery and you're going to be like streaming HoloLens VR headsets from the moon. It's like none of that actually happened because the networks didn't deliver performance. There's a lot of hype, but there was no substance there at the end of the day. And I think that's a good way to look at a lot of the, the hype and buzz around new blockchains is if, you know, so if Solana had been 10 times faster than Ethereum, it would have failed. No question about it. Solana had to be a thousand times faster than Ethereum to get any sort of attention and traction. And that's because it's harder to build on, especially in the early days when you don't have all that developer tooling already built out. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about like a lot of competitor chains that are coming up, if we're going to use the term competitor, is that it's not entirely clear what that technology bet is. That value proposition that says the current market serves these types of things. We're going to provide these kinds of things, right? When most people are zigging, you generally want to bet on the group that's doing a zag. Now, you don't want to put your entire retirement fund into people that are doing a zag, but like that is where the, the innovation never happens on the people who are all chasing the same thing. It happens on the folks who are going a different direction. If I were investing in AI right now, I would not be looking at LLM investments. I'd be trying to find the people who are doing something totally different. You see this with Fusion too, right? All the folks who are pursuing Fusion through like tokamak reactor designs, like Basically, none of that stuff works. And the folks who are trying to create sustained fusion for power generation in totally different ways, 
suddenly they're having a lot of traction because they're doing something weird and different. Um, I think that's kind of a good way to think about this space and, and technology in general is the safe bets are usually less safe and the risky bets are usually less risky. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a very interesting point of, you know, need to be contrarian, um, both in terms of the fact that, like you said, for you know, example, Solana uh, ecosystem again, traction needs to be you know, a thousand times faster and things like that, right? That it's not always just being better, having more technical capabilities. There's a first mover advantage. There's being able to bring the right attention, right people and, you know, curate the use cases. Yeah. Uh, but I want to touch upon something a little bit tangential as you kind of, you know, switch gears here a little bit. Um, you talked about this sort of mobile example, right? How yeah. two usually that when kind of talking about that, let's switch to some of the more interesting projects that are perhaps a bit contrarian or at least stand out. Um, and as someone who's you known in marketing strategy, I'm, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on this. Um, let's talk about Solana Mobile. So obviously, yeah. you know, when I heard about this, I thought it was ex both like extremely interesting and alluring, but also I was a little bit surprised and unsure of what role this is supposed to take. Um, you know, since then, oh. I, I see now that you're accepting pre-orders for it. Um, it seems like use cases are, you know, pretty ranging, right? You can do trading and transactions, you can mint the NFTs, you can access dApps, but kind of beyond these utilities that seem mostly like you can do also through your browser, through your, you know, laptop. Um, want to understand what the intention behind this is, what the sort of, you know, sort of a development timeline of this looks like right now, and really understand that where do you go from here, right? Is this meant for, you know, people who aren't in crypto to sort of transition in and adopt a new wave of users? Is this for crypto native people to have an extra tool? Or is this designed for those people already heavily invested and involved in builders in the Solana ecosystem to have an easier and more effective, effective way to access and sort of build on the ecosystem? Yeah. So a lot of stuff there. Let me start unpacking with like the thesis that Solana Mobile was kind of conceived on. So if we're going to live in a world where we're actually transacting and paying for coffee, for whatever we need to do with blockchain. If you're showing an NFT to get into a club or a party, if these things that we're talking about is like abstract forms of technology actually are meant to become an integral part of your life, they need to be on the device that you carry around with you all the time. The problem is software wallets suck. Software wallets are terribly insecure. Um, they get, you know, of things that get hacked, it's always the software wallets. and the solution there is carrying around a ledger. But carrying around a ledger, like you don't want another thing in your pocket. If you lose your ledger, you're really concerned about it. There's all of this type of like self-custody is really hard right now on the go. It's great on the desktop, but it's it's actually pretty rough on the go. Now, there's great Bluetooth support for a bunch of ledger devices and stuff, but still you, you know, you don't want to be carrying a ledger with you all the time. So the main innovation that Solana Mobile brings on Saga is the something called a seed vault. So the seed vault actually stores private keys on the secure element inside of the phone. This is the same place that the credit cards are stored on the phone or the face ID print or the thumbprint to unlock your phone. Um, it's all stored in this really protected environment with a secure VM wrapped around it. So it's not quite the security grade you get from using a ledger, but it's a thousand times more secure than any software wallet. And so, you know, why do you have to build a phone for that? Well, because it requires firmware modification. Now, this whole thing is open source, and it's probably best to think about this kind of how Microsoft launched the Microsoft Surface line. So you go back in time to when Microsoft launched the first Surface laptop. Windows computers were pretty bad. Uh, you know, you, you could spend $600 on a Dell, and you'd get something that kind of felt a little bit like a like a kid's laptop, like a Fisher-Price like toy laptop. These things were not very good build quality, and especially compared to their competitors at Apple, the, the build quality just wasn't there for this for these computers. So Microsoft was like, we can make flagship computers. We can basically show the PC industry that there's a market for Apple quality physical hardware. And now you can buy a Dell that's for a certain price point, just as good as any Mac that you can buy from a build quality perspective. So part of the goal with Solana Mobile and Saga is to show Huawei and Samsung and Google and you know Pixel and all these different organizations that um, blockchain can be a key differentiating feature for their products. The same way that NFC, you know, tap to pay launched on like just a few Android devices, the same way that 5G starts out on just a few phones, the same way that the first you know, company to put a second camera on a phone was not Apple, right? It was, it, all of these things are meant to just move the window of what people expect and what they think is possible and to prove out that a market exists for this stuff. 
So that's probably the best way to think about it. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's a really interesting angle where you're talking about it. It's a demonstration to sort of these like web two builders as well. Um, and those both on the hardware side, obviously, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense that having the accessibility would increase both the usage and this sort of like adoption from a normalcy standpoint, right? You can start to equate it that if I have, a, you know, an iPhone or any other phone, if I start to have my Solana phone as well, um, I'm more yeah. normalized to the ecosystem. And that makes a lot of sense. But I guess in terms of this sort of let's say like collaboration to demonstrate to, you know, the apples and Googles of the world that, you know, this can be something alongside iPhone or Pixel and, you know, hard to say, of course, what that collaboration could or if it would look like. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's an interesting point. And kind of going back to the Grizzlython, uh, I saw that AWS and Stripe and some Web2 companies are partners, but also some Web3. So would love to hear from your perspective when we're talking about either these things like demonstrations to for, for the iPhone and Pixel or these hackathon collaborations. Um, what role do you sort of see Solana playing with its interaction with Web2 companies, especially some of the bigger companies? And how do you go about navigating that when at times they can be the ones, you know, sort of stonewalling your success, but they're also the ones who sort of paved the way and perhaps can be really effective partners and beneficial to both sides? Yeah, you know, I think um, we think of Google as one company and Facebook as one company. These things are sort of like the U.S. federal government. There are an infinite number of divisions doing an infinite number of things, and the left hand very much doesn't know what the right pinky is doing, um, and that's okay, right? This is this is like the the giant multinational conglomerate model, like GE uh, or yeah, maybe not GE, but like Samsung, right? Samsung runs hospitals and builds nuclear reactors and ships and phones and TVs, and like it's a it's a very big company, so. You know, from the from the Web two business model, I think is kind of toxic, on a wider sense, right? Like the the work that Web two businesses models have done, where it's an attention based economy, it's an ad supported economy. The goal is to keep you engaged on the platform as long as possible, so they can make as most money off of you. That's a bad structure in my mind to build anything around. Now, that doesn't mean though that there aren't areas of these Web2 organizations that are doing very different things, right? Stripe is a great example of this. They make their money processing payments and the margins on credit cards are very good for them. But if they don't take Web3 payments seriously, suddenly Web3 payments become a massive part of the market. Suddenly Stripe has been completely outflanked by some other company, the same way that Stripe 10 years earlier completely outflanked the old payment processing companies and was able to disrupt them with an incredibly new and innovative model for how to process credit cards that took the processing fees down from like four and a half percent to like two and two point eight percent. Now, the smart web web two companies are are knowing we have to at least be experimenting with this stuff. And I think last year, like if you looked at crypto last year and you just weren't allowed to look at the price, you would have thought 2022 was the most successful breakout year we've ever seen in crypto. All these big web two companies that had kind of silly little side projects going actually made those projects real. They made them user focused. They did press and PR around them. This wasn't like the MasterCard pilot about using Ethereum USDC that's been going on for like six years, right? This is actually like companies coming up and saying like Stripe is launching a Web3 payments API product. Google Cloud is bringing Solana validators into the Google Cloud platform. Not like I can go set it up myself with a bunch of clicks and manage it myself, but a fully managed instance of a Solana validator and RPC server in Google Cloud. That is like a total breakthrough in, in these companies' approach to Web3. And so I think what we're seeing is the continuation of that into this year and into the next year is coming from that. And it's a bet, right? For some of these companies, it's actually, it's a hedge. Google, like the work that Google is worried about right now with OpenAI and Bing, you know, taking ad revenue away from them is real. And they're, they're very concerned about that. Crypto has that same potential, right? If you don't take crypto seriously, there's no ad-supported business model in crypto right now. So either a company like Google, and I haven't talked to anyone at Google about this, but you got to think that they're either figuring out, okay, can we bring an ad engine to blockchain? Or can we figure out a way that we continue to be an important and valuable company throughout this information space if blockchain takes off and becomes the dominant thing the internet runs on in 10 years? 
And those kind of concerns, those sort of thoughts are all uh, key to these organizations in figuring out like, basically Web3 is big enough, they have to take it seriously and they can't just be keep looking at it as a side project. And there's great people at these organizations who are trying to turn the culture internally towards blockchain more. And it's really awesome to see that. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, the way you put it where the left pinky doesn't know what the right hand is, is doing, and that makes a lot of sense where these organizations are, of course, so large. And, you know, one of the philosophies sort of I have and, and trends I've recognized is these companies are no longer actively innovating outside of their, let's say, sphere of focus, but more so they try to take bets on this, right? So, you know, for example, Google will have like Waymo as a spinoff when it was like competing against Tesla. And nowadays you said, there's no reason why Google can either work with Solana or and vice versa. Like if they have to spin off their own chain or do something, they can do that as well. So it makes yeah. a lot of sense why it can be difficult within an existing both corporate structure, but when you're just focused and your engineers and your whole team is built on a completely different idea, it's different to like, you know, shift to another space and can be in, in, you know, impractical. So it makes a lot of sense to kind of transition there. Totally. Uh, at Dartmouth Blockchain, that's something we've kind of like also like, you know, sort of dealt with as well in terms of, like you said, we're 2022. <laughs> I think you're the first person actually put this idea that not looking at price could have been the most successful year ever. Um, they have an interesting assertion that I have to actually think about. But I think for us too, as is for our club, we kind of transitioned into doing, you know, expanding in different areas, right? Including technical projects and research pieces, but also doing things like this podcast, going to more events and conferences. So I get what you mean, where you kind of have to branch out and, and sort of... Yeah switch, you know, switch lanes. Um, otherwise you kind of stagnate and can't really like go with the flow. Um, want to touch on another sort of, let's say, interesting, uh, interesting uh, idea and, and sort of project Solana has with the Solana spaces. Um, so, so I was actually in New York this summer when the Hudson Yard store was actually launched and got to take a quick peek there as well. Nice. And, um, the venture capital firm I was working at too actually received um it was like a I know it was a blank souls and Solana sneakers collab and sort of an invite for to get a pair there as well. So it seems like you guys are doing a lot on that marketing front and it's very interesting. Obviously, you know, everyone loves some merch and it's a very a cool idea. Yeah. But it, it, do you think you know, the role of Solana spaces serves to sort of just be an interesting idea and a nice flagship store, some way to help increase visibility and just you know get some cool merch to people? Or do you think yeah. it also has an idea where I see, for example, you can hire Solana Space to do like tutoring and, you know, almost like corporate events and things of that nature as well. So, you know, Solana Spaces is interesting because it is an external team that was given a grant to basically produce and create these spaces and experiment with business models and find a way that this thing might, might work and be viable. Now, there's a lot of people who are like, <clears throat> it's totally wild. Why are you launching a store? This doesn't make any sense at all. And you think about the cost of running these stores and it's not that different from like a subway advertising campaign. Right. Or like a, you know, it's definitely cheaper than a Super Bowl ad. Right. There's all of these other, uh, you know, we're sponsoring a Formula One team to put your logo on the side of it. Right. There, there's all of these other types of things that, again, other blockchains have tried that haven't really moved the needle for them. Right. There, there's, there's a network that took over a bunch of the subways in New York. Nothing changed. And, and so the idea of the spaces is that like so much of marketing nowadays, especially online, especially in digital product is like one to a bajillion. The idea is sort of like, like this is the classic like fallacy that you see in every like young startup pitch deck, right? When they don't know what they're doing and no one's talked to them, they have a great idea where they're like, look, the TAM of financial services is $45 quadrillion a year. If we can just get 0.001% of that, we'll have a $400 billion ARR business. And you're like, it never works like that, guys. Like when you're trying to take a tiny, tiny, tiny slice of a giant pie, all that means is no one's interested in your product. So the idea here is like, if you can try to on, to find users who are actually like a targeted ad campaign will work so much better than just a giant massive ad campaign. So if you create avenues for the folks curious about blockchain to come and engage in a location that everyone's familiar with. I mean, you know, this is a this is probably before your guys' time a little bit, but um, you know, before Apple created the Apple stores, no one felt comfortable switching to Mac. But suddenly having a store that you know, you had an iPod and you're like, okay, maybe Maybe it's worth going and trying to figure out, like, is the rest of the Apple ecosystem interesting? Well, going and buying a $2,000 computer is a very high bar of entry. But if you can go to a store that's maybe in a city that you're visiting and you can actually test out and look at the Mac and you can see it, that's a much easier sell 
to consider that experimentation. And so Solana Spaces is sort of a, it's an attempt to see like, is, is the market ready for this? And maybe the market isn't, like we'll see. Um, but it's definitely one of those things that the zag where everyone else is doing a zig and maybe it'll pay off and maybe it won't. Um, but it's, it's not more expensive than some of the traditional stuff that folks have tried and hasn't worked. Yeah. It sounds like it's like just trying to like create some of those like aha moments that might click for people. And I'm sure like, I think the crypto adoption story for the future in the past is these constant like little things that suddenly start clicking for people. And I remember like Sam Altman, he said this like a few weeks ago on a podcast. He said like, he doesn't, he didn't re- he didn't know why chat GPT just suddenly exploded. He thought someone else would build it, but it was only when they built like a front end internally with the models that suddenly like it made sense and it got all this buzz. And like, I'm sure like yeah. they will have some of those moments too. Um, I mean, what kind of, do you have any kind of predictions in terms of like, I think things will really start making sense when, um, you know, I guess part of it is the uncertainty and the unknown, but do you have any like theories? So one of the things I love about the chat GPT piece is like, yes, it's not chat GPT three, it's chat GPT 3.5, but like all they did was a UX change. Fundamentally, it's the same model that created Dolly and all these other, these visual image components, but suddenly they applied it to text. They put it into a chat web bot system and they, you know, that was the revolution. The product didn't actually change from an underlying technology standpoint. The UX wrapper around it is the thing that changed. And suddenly that made it go viral. I think this is like a very classic, like people are like, oh, why did TikTok become so successful? We had Vine 15 years earlier. And it's like, well, there's a lot of reasons that like the same product wouldn't have worked 15 years ago and would work today. And I think that's one of the most interesting things there is like, the, the change that made ChatGPT go viral, I don't think is technology. It's entirely UX. And what we're seeing now in crypto is we're getting that UX revolution, right? This is like I, this is like your question earlier about like Solana Mobile. You're like, oh, well, this stuff kind of already exists on phones. And it's like, yes. And, and smartphones existed before the iPhone and before the touchscreen phone, right? But, but taking that and changing the form factor just a little bit, changing the expectations of how you interact with it, those are things that actually can can make the thing go massively successful and suddenly find product market fit in a way that maybe it didn't before. So I think the UX revolution in crypto that's that this started, I would say, last year and is very much continuing through this year, that's the main thing that I'm excited about. It's not actually that there's like, oh, there's this amazing new technology coming that's going to forever. Like zero knowledge proofs are exciting. I think they're very cool. I'm excited to see uh, how folks applied them in different ways. But I don't think zero knowledge proofs are going to be the thing that like pops this technology up to mainstream. It's going to be folks figuring out how you don't have to worry about seed phrases. Seed phrases are terrifying. Here's 24 words, write them down. Don't lose them. Also, if anyone else gets them, you're screwed. That's like a very rough onboarding experience for a user. Um, I think if that was the way you had to use credit cards, no one would use credit cards. Right. So. Yeah, all all of this stuff I think that's exciting is actually most of it is on UX that'll enable developers to build new products. Yeah, I, it seems like what gets most people in crypto excited is like a lot of the theory. Like people get excited about yeah. like new AMM research and like this new paper just dropped or this new like protocol design that allows you to create like another sort of derivatives market or whatever. And like obviously all that exploration is cool, but until like people can really, you know, not the but in practice can actually experience the technology in a way that fits into their lives. Um, yeah. Don't really get it, I suppose. I think a lot of people in crypto are lazy and that's why they like the theory. Theory yeah. is the laziest thing to like. Yeah, that's why. Like if you're an academic researcher, it's different, right? But like if you're really into theory as someone who works for something that's trying to change the world, Applied theory is the thing that changes the world. Theory usually does not change the world. Um, And I think that all of the cool stuff that's happening is happening on the execution layer. There's very awesome research papers from like the kind of software engineer that's building Berkeley packet filter. God bless them, right? Nothing in this space would be possible without them. The work they're doing though if it wasn't being taken and putting into products that everyone uses or networks like Solana wouldn't mean anything. And so these things go hand in hand together. 
Um, and I think we have too many people in crypto who get very excited about the research component or the paper component and don't actually do the work. And usually these are not the people writing the papers either. This is the thing that's so confusing about crypto. Everyone's like an armchair researcher. Um, they're not actually like writing papers themselves. They're not, there's like, there's like 5% that are doing the work of creating the original research. There's 80% that are just digesting it and talking about it. And then there's another 15% on the bottom who are actually building these stuff into products. Yeah. And we, we need to fix that ratio a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like a lot of people get hyped about reading white papers and stuff. But yeah, I mean, um, kind of segueing to a different yeah. topic around just like college students. Obviously, like Dharma Blockchain, we're very invested in college students building in blockchain, getting more exposure. And so like from your standpoint, I'm curious, I'm sure you've worked with some blockchain clubs. Like, what do you yeah. think are the main barrier, barriers to entry for, you know, young people, especially students trying to get into the space, um, trying to get their hands wet? Yeah, I would I would say that one of the things that is really hard about blockchain is the financial incentive. I think as much as like if you're getting if you're going into blockchain to get rich, you're going to get wrecked. Um universally. It never works that way. So the thing like for, for students who are interested in blockchain, be honest with yourself about what you're interested in. If you're interested in it for the money, go work for Goldman Sachs don't work for a crypto company. If what you care about is the technology and or the, the the technology's ability to change society and culture, that's the right reason to be in the space. Like this is why me coming from a political science environmental studies and, you know, uh transboundary water resource management treaty background is like, oh, crypto is awesome. Cuz this is the place where all this stuff actually gets applied and you can actually like see it happening in the real world. And that's the part that keeps me so excited and engaged with this stuff. I think it's an incredible force for good in the world. It's not like, I'm not here to get rich. If that happens, fantastic. But like th there are, you know, the, the folks who come in for the other reasons, it never works out is, is my experience. So if, if you're a student and you have the experience to work at a blockchain club, you have the ability to get internships at layer ones or layer twos or something like Coinbase, should absolutely take that. But the thing is, don't focus too much on the engineering if you're an engineering student. And if you're trying to do the product and marketing side, don't focus too much on the product and marketing. The, one of the most important things about like college or internships that come out of college, uh, especially for people who are engineers, is to get a broad-based understanding. I have friends who, uh, who, who went to Thayer undergraduate, and like the reason they liked the Dartmouth Engineering School is that it made you take an English class. And like that is actually like the superpower 10 years out is like, if, yes, you can graduate school and you can go get paid $100,000 to write software. And that's an insane, incredible thing to do. But eight years down the line, if all you know how to do is write software, you're going to hit a cap in your career. And so like take take it, like there's a reason you went to college, right? And it's, and it's the reason you went to a liberal arts college. Take advantage of that while you still have it because there's never a better time in your life to get that. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And I think that's something we've been just tackling with is just like, how do we incentivize people to be like part of the community or care about blockchain? And yeah. like the reality is like, People won't do anything unless there's a motivating force for it. And um, economic incentive really is one of the greatest motivating forces. And so yeah. I feel like we've kind of come to terms with the fact that um, the people who are really passionate about the technology will be involved. And like, you can't really like force people who care more about like, you know, if they want to go into investment banking or consulting, which is like sure. very at our school, just like there are those people. And it's just like. You but if those folks are interested in this stuff, right? Like if, if those folks are like, oh, I want to be an incredibly powerful consultant and rise up through the ranks, they better get some blockchain exposure. They, they better have an idea when the, when the first company comes to them and says like, when Walmart comes to them and says like, hey, we want to do a blockchain payments integration. They have to say like, oh yeah, actually I know something about that. I yeah. can, I can help you with this. Not like, Ooh, I don't know, man. If you heard of, if you read the Wall Street Journal about stable coins, I don't know where that's going. Like, this is the thing where it's like the curiosity there is like the thing that matters. And you know, you're talking about economic incentives. I think it's so funny because like no one thinks about college as an inverse economic incentive. Like you've prepaid seventy thousand dollars a year, or someone has, or you've gotten a grant, or you know, there's a huge amount of money that's already sunk into this thing. 
So every little bit of information you can extract effectively reduces the cost of your education on a per information unit basis. Yeah. But people don't think that way when they're when they're when they're looking at the stuff. So it, it's just it's it's funny and interesting. Yeah, no, that's a good take. And I think like seeing like understanding blockchain knowledge as kind of even like a long term investment because it might not sure. be useful for you if you're more in a traditional path like in a year, but I'm sure it will be useful. But yeah, um, yeah, so- it's like it's like what is the value of reading Shakespeare? Economically, I can't tell you what the value of reading Shakespeare is. What I can tell you is the smartest people I know all read and bothered to understand Shakespeare. And it's not because there's anything about Shakespeare that makes you smarter. It's that being naturally curious and exposing yourself to a broad base of ideas makes you better at everything you do. Right. Like it'll always serve you well. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. Just last thing about the student clubs before I pass it on to students is just like, what kind of opportunities does Solana Foundation have for like students, crypto clubs? I know the hackathon is a thing, yeah. but generally curious, like what are the, array of opportunities available. So we run summer internships. They're mostly engineering focused. I think we're going to start some product and marketing ones this summer. Um, I'm definitely going to have a comms one or two in New York now that we have an office here as well. Um, They're paid, of course. Um, So there's those type of opportunities available. There's Solana University, which is like a basically the student outreach arm and university outreach arm. That's everything from working with blockchain clubs to actually working with professors to bring blockchain teaching into computer science curriculums. I am desperately looking for a poli-sci professor who wants to talk about blockchain governance. So if you know any of them, let me know. I think that's a very interesting and unexplored topic. Like blockchain stuff is basically just Eleanor Ostrom's like common pool resource management theories that she won the Nobel Prize for like a few years ago, like applied onto software. Very interesting intersections of stuff there. Um, And then there's also this whole, um, you know, super team is like this, this sort of, I don't even know how to describe them. It's a community of developers and builders globally. Um, earn.superteam.fun has a whole bunch of bounties. And so that's they're all micro bounties. They're anywhere between like a few hundred bucks up to like maybe $20,000, just not really micro at that point. But to build code, to write things about blockchain, to produce videos about blockchain, it's lots of areas where just like, if you want to learn about something and you want to also get paid for it, it can be a really good way to do that. Yeah, for sure. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, of course, there's a lot of, uh, you know, not not surprisingly, a lot of listeners are at the sort of college age or crypto enthusiast level. Of course, we always like to touch upon that. Um, kind of know we're wrapping up on time here in a couple of minutes, but I uh, just kind of want to like kind of sh- transition to our last phase. And that's kind of looking at like what your thoughts, any hot takes, any anything like there uh, on the crypto industry at large and also for Solana as well. You know, we'd love to hear what do you think are the biggest issues or issue facing crypto and blockchain space industry right now? Is it government regulation? Is it like adoption and UX issues that you mentioned? Is it finding use cases? Um, it could be institutional involvement. It was a lot of just more in a bear market and, you know, it's going to take a while until the stock market and also crypto rebounds. Um, we'll lift here, you know, what you think the biggest issues are. And as a secondary, like what role you think government regulation does play in the ecosystem and what sort of your take or Solana's take is on that? Yeah, you know, I think the government regulation piece is important to think about and consider you know what what i would say is as we look at a lot of this technology one of the main questions is is like why why is this here right like what what is the function of this technology in this space uh and how can that be something that folks like look at as positive and so government regulation uh is inevitable in some way the goal of folks working in this space is to make it something that recognizes the credible base layer neutrality piece. I think that that's the most important part for the United States to get right, or else it's going to drive all blockchain development offshore. If you think about this from like an internet standpoint, section 230 is the thing that allows Facebook to have a comment section, right? There's there's this very interesting legal history of websites that used to get shut down for the comment section because they were considered reliable for all of the stuff posted there. If I, uh, you know, have, we're on Zoom right now. If I threaten you in such a way that you could, uh, you know, go to the cops and report it, Zoom is not liable for facilitating the medium by which I threatened you. That is credible base layer neutrality at its at its core, right? Zoom has no obligation to make sure that we're not selling drugs to each other over this call, right? These are all, this this base layer has to also be applied to crypto. And it's harder 
because crypto is seen as something that's purely financial, whereas Zoom is seen as a communications technology. But fundamentally, Zoom and a blockchain, they're doing the same thing. They're exchanging bits of data that are considered valuable by both parties. Now, I'm not earning Zoom coin for being on this call with you, but like there is this model there where these are actually very similar base layer internet technologies. And if we can get the United States, the, the most important thing for the United States to get right is to recognize that or create a framework around it that is easy to work in. And I think that's all anyone in the crypto industry in the United States really wants. There's very few countries that have gotten this right. I think China's gotten it particularly wrong, for example. Um, there are other domains in the world that are getting a little bit more crypto friendly. Um, like Dubai just launched a big initiative, but there's also other reasons Dubai is launching that initiative. So, you know, what we'd really love to see are like stable democracies supporting crypto. Yeah, certainly. That makes a lot of sense. And I think the idea of like a base, just like neutral, like layer neutrality makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, this is like the sort of political state of crypto is something that I personally, I say total non-expert have a lot of hot takes on and just interesting thoughts on. You know, I think it's interesting the fact that we're running up on almost one year now since President Biden's executive order on like sort of digital asset, essentially crypto regulation. Um, at that time, I liked the fact that there was some sort of framework, you know, there's some thought being going on. They sort of posed hypothetical like central bank digital currency. But obviously, yeah. since then, we've seen a lot of things. You know, the SEC has faced a really internal divide with, um, you know, Commissioner Gensler, um, as well as like, uh, sorry, Chair Gensler and SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce. I think personally, like this sort of safe harbor 2.0, you know, giving this sort of like three years sort of runway so that, you know, crypto yeah. organizations can come to regulate, like come to sort of uh, regulation and kind of meet in the middle makes a lot of sense, but it doesn't seem like that's the state they have. You see like arms like, you know, A16Z's crypto like policy arm and things like that, like the private institution getting involved. And uh, I wouldn't call it crypto lobbying yet, but maybe in a couple of years, we'll kind of get to that point almost. Um, and then I think there's a lot of, so a lot of like non-regulatory agencies, right? Like the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, like yes. SF, um, and you know, others kind of getting involved. So a lot of like interesting sort of players here, but uh, that's a whole nother hour long podcast. Um, kind of just want to end it off with asking you, you know, what does the outlook for 2023 and beyond look like? What do you think it looks like for crypto and especially for Solana overall? Is there an adoption outlook you have? Any sort of new advancements or technology, you know, developments you're excited for? Any, you know, trends or venture deals? Any acquisitions coming the way? Um, let's yeah. hear what you think is kind of interesting, exciting from outlook from either Solana or the uh, ecosystem as a whole. So I think one of the things that's like a big unknown is how the macroeconomic situation in the, in, in the world, and especially in the United States, will impact the growth and development of blockchain for the future. I think what we saw throughout 2020 and 2021 was that like there were parts of that cycle that were driven by um, a perceived lower amount of uh, risk in the crypto market than in the equities market, right? And that, that's sort of one component that drove some of this adoption. What I'm particularly excited for this year is that a lot of these foundational technologies, both for, for infrastructure scaling and for UX, are getting much more mature. And I think by the by June, we should see, um, you know, not just on Solana, but in other networks as well, uh, onboarding will be much easier, right? And I think those, these are the main changes that could could create more of a breakout moment for crypto. You know, I think also people are starting to realize that all of the failures of crypto in 2022 were actually failures of centralized entities, right? Celsius, Three Arrows, FTX, none of these were actually blockchain companies. They were Web2 companies that happened to be using blockchain technology or trading blockchain assets, but they weren't really built that way. I think that narrative is starting to catch on more. I mean, I was just in Turkey um, before the earthquake for a hacker house we were running there. And, you know, that's an area where due to the rate of inflation, uh, crypto is incredibly attractive and interesting. I, I have friends who were in Ukraine and had to evacuate when Russia invaded, and they could take most of their wealth with them because it was in crypto. These are really compelling use cases in the developing world or in areas that have seen, you know, more economic dislocation, and and that sort of thing. I think takes longer to make sense in the United States or in Western Europe, where we basically trust the banks, we basically trust the government, we basically have a functioning po a political system. I know it's hard to believe that, but it's much more functional than most places in the world. Um, and so, you know, I, these use cases are getting built out elsewhere. They sort of mature, and then they come back to the market. I think 2023 and 2024 are going to be a cycle where a lot of the stuff that was built in 22 
outside of the United States and outside of the Western world starts coming back into these markets in a more mature system. Gaming is one of those big ones that I see doing this, right? The mobile gaming revolution was not like, you know, video games were kind of invented and built in the United States for the most part. The entire mobile revolution took place in South Korea. That's where free to play started. That's where all these models began. And then suddenly we have Fortnite, right? Which is like the world's most popular free to play game. The the same thing is sort of happening on the fringes with some of these blockchain technologies with payments, custody, UX, all this kind of stuff. It's happening in the markets where it makes sense today. And then we'll see it come back to the markets uh, that are maybe not quite, the cost benefit isn't quite there yet, but it will be once that ratio changes a bit. Totally. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's really important to your point to like zoom out, you know, sort of go beyond our bubble and recognize that use cases if you're in a nation where there is like, or just even in an area where there's lack of like information freedom, lack of financial independence and technology, even within, you know, uh, a lot of African and other nations, for example, you have like, like Paytm is, for example, in India, and you have these essentially just like Venmo equivalents that are yeah. just proper, you know, uh, banking system, which is interesting to think about. I've seen even the Red Cross and a lot of other intergovernmental and um, philanthropic arms and organizations using crypto for things like verification, other things now. So it's really interesting to think about that. Like there's a lot of use cases that we can't even imagine because frankly, we don't face those problems, but it's important to recognize that that may drive a, a huge part of the world um, to, to sort of be on board. And that's really important as well. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what we want to, you know, end things off here. Just want to say thank you so much for your time. It's been a absolutely phenomenal having you on, you know, getting to pick your brain and hear some of your thoughts as well. Um, and yeah, hope you enjoyed the time with us as well. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Perfect, awesome. Thank you.